This morning we continue our series in the Gospel of John, but before we do that, let me ask a quick question um, that I asked last week. How many of you have listened to the GCF Flock Talk podcast yet? Okay, a few more hands than last week. Okay, check it out. Uh, go to the Apple Podcast Store, type in Flock Talk, and you should find it under Grace Christian Fellowship Flock Talk. I think we have seven episodes now, and that podcast is designed to encourage you, inspire you, and, and help you get to know uh, other folks at GCF North. Well, let's pray as we uh, dive into this great text this morning. Father, we are so thankful for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning, and we're so thankful for your word. Father, we pray that you would work mightily this morning through the preached word. We confess that nothing good will happen unless you send your spirit now to give each one of us the gift of understanding. Do this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Brent Webster was from Greenville, South Carolina. As a result, he had a thick southern drawl. He was so southern that many of his friends called him cornbread, which I guess is southern. Uh, Brent uh, loved college football, he loved his wife, and he loved the things of God. We met in seminary over 20 years ago, and we became fast friends. In fact, I would consider Brent one of the closest friends that I've ever had. But how did I know that Brent liked me? <laughs> how did I know that Brent was my friend? Maybe I liked him, but he didn't like me. Was there any evidence that uh, Brent was, in fact, my friend? And what was that evidence? Well, we spent hours and hours together playing disc golf when we should have been studying Greek flashcards. Uh, Brent laughed at all my dumb jokes. Um, we discussed the intricacies of theology until the wee hours of the morning. And most importantly, Brent took a significant interest in my spiritual well-being. So there was all kinds of evidence that Brent was my friend, that Brent actually liked being with me. And that brings us to John 15, 12 to 17. This text makes an astonishing claim. This text claims that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Amazing. Which raises the obvious question, are you one of those friends of Jesus? How do you know if you're a friend of Jesus? What is true of the friends of Jesus? What is the proof that you're a friend of Jesus? Or what are the characteristics of the friends of Jesus. Well, this text tells us exactly who the friends of Jesus are. It lays out four characteristics of the friends of Jesus. And I wonder if these characteristics are true of you. It is possible to be deceived, sadly, about being a friend of Jesus. But this text tells us who those friends are. Well, what are those characteristics? Jesus' friends love his disciples. Jesus' friends obey his commands. Jesus' friends know his plans. And Jesus' friends bear his fruit. First point this morning. Jesus' friends love his disciples. Well, how do Jesus' friends love his disciples? Answer is, they lay down their lives. Look with me at John 15, 12 to 13. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus commands his friends, in this context, the disciples, to love one another. In other words, he's saying, disciples, love the other disciples. Love them. Well, how should they love them? He tells us. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is clearly saying that his friends are those who lay down their lives for the saints, for the disciples. Now, we're called to love everyone everywhere as Christians, but this particular command in the context here is a command to love the disciples, to love the other saints. The friends of Jesus are willing to lay down their lives or make great sacrifices for the saints. Well, shortly after Chuck Colson was released from prison for the Watergate scandal, he gave a speech at an Ivy League college. As he began his address, a group of students began to heckle him relentlessly. The heckling got worse and worse and worse, and they shouted, how could you have defended that criminal Richard Nixon? Finally, Colson stopped his speech, looked at the hecklers, and said, I defended him because he was my friend. Instantly, the other students stood up and applauded. Why? Because Colson's commitment to friendship struck a nerve. They appreciated his willingness to make great sacrifices that were very costly for a friend, even a crooked friend. <laughs> Commenting on the situation, one historian writes, in that moment, Colson understood and in the wasteland of broken relationships in which we live today, every one of those students was longing to have at least one friend who would sacrifice on his or her behalf. Jesus is telling the disciples, if you're my friend, you will lay down your life or sacrifice your life for the saints, for the disciples. Now, as Christians... This must start, first and foremost, in our homes. If you're married, your closest friend should be your spouse. Husbands, are you willing to lay down your life for your spouse? After all, she is your closest friend. If she needs more physical affection or more verbal communication from you, are you willing to give those things to her? If she says she needs uh, more spending money, are you willing to take less? If she is begging you to take the lead in family worship or take the lead in discipling the kids or take the lead um, in praying with her, are you willing to lay down your life and do these things for her? And wives, how can you sacrifice, lay down your life for your closest friend, your husband? Parents, when your children need more of your time, are you willing to lay down your life? When your friend needs help putting on a new roof, roofing is not a fun job, by the way. How many of you have roofed a house before? Okay, a few of you. It's hard, backbreaking labor. 
When that happens, are you willing to sacrifice to serve that friend? Uh, I was at a staff meeting recently, and one of our staff members said, hey, I'm going I'm to put a roof on our ADU. And I thought, have fun with that. <laughs> and someone else in the staff meeting, our worship leader, Brian Dixon, said, oh, I'd love to help. And I thought, I, I, I would too, I guess. <laughs> Your friend needs help moving, what are you going to do? When your friend needs some money, what are you going to do? Two friends of mine recently gave up a Saturday afternoon to help me fix a fence in my rental property. And they, these are, are busy people that have other things to do on Saturday afternoon. How did Jesus' friends love his disciples? By laying down their lives. Well, why did Jesus' friends love his disciples? Because they have been loved. Again, look with me at John 15, 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus tells us to love our friends, his disciples, as he has loved us. And how has he loved us? He's loved us by suffering and dying on the cross in our place. 1 John 4, 10 to 11 uh, says these amazing words. John writes, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that is the uh, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus loved you and I so much that he suffered and died on the cross in our place, absorbing the Father's wrath so that we could have relationship or friendship with him. And according to the Apostle Paul, this love is so amazing, so divine, so extraordinary, that it surpasses all knowledge, Ephesians 3.19. Well, what, make, what makes Christ's love so amazing? Consider a few things. We are way below him in status. In addition, he did not have to die for us. He didn't owe that to us. What he owed us was justice. Furthermore, when, when he died for us, we were not his friends. We were lawbreakers. We were his enemies, Romans 5.8. Finally, his death was not a normal death. He suffered excruciating physical, emotional, and psychological anguish on the cross. That's how much he loves you. And in light of that amazing, unsurpassed love, he calls us to love others. That's what motivates us to love others. Christ's friends laid down their lives for others since Christ laid down his life for us. Here's the thing. We don't love others to get God to love us. That's not Christianity. We love others because, first and foremost, God has already loved us in Christ. It's grace that motivates obedience. Here's the thing. There's probably a few folks here at GCF that are hard for you to love. Maybe I'm one of them. I don't know. There's probably folks here that maybe annoy you, rub you the wrong way, or folks here that have wounded you. Christians are sinners. 
God calls us to love the saints, all of his disciples, with extravagant, costly, sacrificial love. When you and I are struggling to love that person that is hard for us to love, you and I must pause and think about Christ's bloody, bruised body on the cross. That's the standard. And when we see his love for us, his enemies, that motivates us to love others. How in the world can we stare at the cross and see Christ's love and not love our enemies or the saints that have wounded us or hurt us? That's what we're called to. What a glorious calling. First, Jesus' friends love his disciples. But that's not all they do. Second, Jesus' friends obey his commands. John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if, if, if you do what I command you. The test of friendship with Christ, according to Christ, is obedience to his commands. Now, this phrase needs to be qualified, obviously, but we often qualify verses far too quickly, especially the hard verses of Scripture. I recently heard a story about a lady who said to her pastor's wife, with great anguish of soul, I want to get divorced. The pastor's wife asked, well, why do you want to get divorced? And she said, through tears, I want to get divorced because my husband refuses to pick up his socks. <laughs> and the pastor's wife said, well, that's tragic, but that's not biblical grounds for divorce. And she said, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. But you don't understand, for 20 years, I've asked my husband to please pick up his socks. And for 20 years, he's ignored me, which means he does not care about my interests or my desires, which means he doesn't love me. Now, I don't think this lady has grounds for divorce based on the scriptures, but I do think her husband is a jerk. This seems like a minor thing, doesn't it, picking up socks? It's very minor. But after 20 years of ignoring, of the husband ignoring his wife's simple requests, that's proof that he's a selfish, self-centered guy who doesn't really care about his wife's desires, her wants, her needs. How do you think Jesus feels when we ignore his little commands for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Yes, Jesus has feelings. He's our friend. He's grieved when we disobey his commands. What is that one little area in your life where you have ignored Christ's commands for 20 or 30 years? Jesus says very clearly, that you are my friends if you do what I command you. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In other words, you shouldn't call me Lord, Lord, if you ignore my commands. Again, John 15, 14, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do 
what I command you, which implies you are not my friends if you consistently ignore my commands. And again, are there commands right now in your life that you are ignoring? Now, what about grace? Obedience is not what makes us Jesus' friends. We are made Jesus' friends by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved entirely by grace, not by our obedience. But if our faith is real, it will evidence itself in obedience to Christ's commands. Not perfectly, never perfectly, but consistently as we grow in godliness. If you don't obey Christ's commands, he's saying, you're not my friend. Again, John 15, 14, you're my friends if you do what I command you. What are Jesus' friends like? Jesus' friends love his disciples. Jesus' friends obey his commands. There's more. Jesus' friends amazingly know his plans. John 15, 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Let's pause for a moment and rejoice in these astonishing words. This verse teaches us the incredible truth that Jesus is the friend of human beings. Why is this so amazing? Because Jesus is God the maker of all things. And since he's God, he is far above us. Listen to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I have flown quite a bit through travel, vacation, and a conference. And it never ceases to amaze me when you're up 30,000 feet above the ground and you look down through the window and you see civilization below you and these massive cities or buildings are teeny tiny dots below you. We are infinitesimally small, tiny, nothing on the grand scheme of things. Even today, it's unusual for people to be best friends with those far above them in station or position or class. For instance, the street sweeper is probably not going to be best friends with the new king of England. The barista is probably not going to be besties with our nation's president. The janitor at Apple Computers is probably not going to be besties with the CEO of Apple Computers. No person is higher than us, than Jesus Christ. Is it like the distance between a flea and a human? No, because that distance is actually measurable. Whereas the distance between us and Christ is infinite. He is an infinite being. Worthy of all honor and glory and praise. He is God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things. He knows everything possible. He is everywhere present in his creation. And he is working all things towards his ordained ends. And that's the God who wants to be friends with us, mere mortals. 
who again are so infinitesimally small in the grand scheme of the cosmos that we can't even be measured. Notice that in verse 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. He's not saying that we are no longer his servants. The apostle Paul and the apostle Peter both say repeatedly that they are slaves of Christ or servants of Christ. But he's simply making the point here that on top of being servants, we are now his friends. And since we are friends, he is going to reveal his plans to us. Amazing. Verse 15 again. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. If you're a Christian, you are a confidant of King Jesus. He is saying here that he's going to reveal the Father's plans to us. The Father's plans to redeem all things through his Son, Jesus. Elon Musk, as many of you know, is the CEO of Tesla Motor Company and SpaceX. He is currently worth $188 billion, making him the second wealthiest person in the world. Number one uh, is a European business owner who has all of his wealth uh, in uh, manufacturing and fashion and textiles. But Elon Musk is incredibly powerful. He has loads of charisma, and he is immensely Wealth, wealthy. How would you respond if Elon Musk called you on the phone this week and said, Joe or Sally, I'm in Spokane for a couple of days. I would love to meet you at Churchill's Steakhouse and buy you a steak because I am longing to share my plans for you in regards to the Tesla Motor Company. I want to meet with you, and I want to tell you all the things I have in store in the next six months to a year at Tesla. Maybe you're wondering, Joe or Sally, why I want to meet with you, why I want to share my plans with you. Well, the answer is, I just want to be your friend. <laughs> Jesus wants to be our friend. He wants to share his plans with us. He wants to hear our heart. He wants to tell us his heart. He wants to give us his thoughts, his perspectives, and he wants to rescue us from loneliness, isolation, and despair. In his book, Loneliness, The Search for Intimacy, author Craig W. Ellison writes these words. Loneliness seems to have flooded the lives of millions of modern Americans. It's an emotional epidemic. A survey of over 40,000 respondents of all ages found that 67% of them felt lonely. Projected nationally, that amounts to over 150 million Americans who personally experienced loneliness. Contact, a nationwide crisis intervention telephone network, received over 18,000 calls due to intense loneliness in one recent six-month period. Loneliness is an epidemic, and it's only growing in our culture. Yet if you're a Christian, Jesus wants to be your friend. And God the Father 
wants to make that happen. So he developed this incredible plan to send his son Jesus to earth, to suffer and die in your place, to remove the guilt and stain of all your sins so that you could be friends with Jesus. And if, if that's the case, you never, ever, ever have to be lonely. Even though everyone else forsakes you, you can be the friend of Jesus. What are Jesus' friends like? Jesus' friends love his disciples. Jesus' friends obey his commands. Jesus' friends know his plans. But there's more. Fourth and finally, Jesus' friends bear his fruit. Look with me at John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus reminds the disciples who chose who. He says, disciples, don't get proud. Don't get self-righteous. Don't think that you're God's gift to the Christian religion. You didn't choose me. I chose you. In other words, it's God who takes the initiative in this relationship with us. And isn't that good news? Why did God choose us? Not because we were super spiritual or super religious or super moral. No, he chose us simply because he loves us and he wants to be our friend. Instead of you and I arguing about the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election, we should rejoice that God took the initiative to be our friends. Wow! If some really wealthy, famous, influential person wanted to be your friend and took the initiative to become your friend, wouldn't you be flattered? Wouldn't you be encouraged? Wouldn't you feel loved and special? Jesus, the maker of all things, is saying, you didn't choose me. I chose you. But Dave, I I remember deciding for Jesus. That's because he enabled you to decide for him. In eternity past, thousands of years ago, he set his love on you. He placed his affection on you. Why? Because he wants to be your friend. Have you thanked him recently for taking that initiative with you? He not only chose us to be his friend, but he also chose us to bear fruit. Look at verse 16 again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God chose us to be his friends, and he also chose us to bear fruit. What fruit? The fruit of the Spirit, which I mentioned last week. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Eternity past, God befriended us. God chose us to be his fruit-bearing friends. That's why you're alive. You and I exist. We were chosen by God so that we would bear fruit which honors and glorifies his name. How is the fruit bearing going? Sometimes the lack of fruit in our lives is awfully discouraging, isn't it? We get overwhelmed and discouraged as we think about all the negative fruit in our lives and all the lack of positive fruit in our lives. In those moments, we often feel like quitting, 
This is just too hard. But in those moments, you and I must remember that eternity past, God shows us to be his fruit-bearing friends, which means he will help us bear fruit. He wants us to bear fruit. Bearing fruit is his plan for our lives. And you and I can bear fruit, as I said last week, John 15, verses 1 to 11, as we abide in Christ. This is not just try harder to bear fruit, pull up your bootstraps, and just, more fruit. No. It doesn't work that way. God has given us everything we need to bear fruit. He tells us in 15, 1 to 11, that we can do nothing apart from him. But as we abide in him through reading the scriptures and through praying, he gives us the grace and strength to bear fruit for his glory. He loves us. He's friends with us. Therefore, he has given us all that we need to bear fruit as we abide in him. If you've lived long enough, you know that friends tend to come and go. My best friend, Brent Webster, and I were very close for a couple years in seminary. But when seminary was over, uh, he moved to California to plant a church. I moved to the East Coast to work at a church in Washington, D.C. And sadly, over time, we lost track of each other. Best friends move away. Sometimes, friendships may grow cold for no apparent reason. Other times, friendships might allow bitterness and misunderstanding to creep in. Friendships are very hard this side of Eden, aren't they? They're hard. But Jesus promises to be our friend through thick and thin He's a friend that will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. And he's a friend that wants to help us bear fruit. No matter who forsakes you or leaves you, you have Jesus. The friend that will never quit and never, ever let go. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, that sounds awesome. I wish I could be a friend of Jesus. What do I have to do? So glad you asked. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I admit that I break your laws. I'm not perfect. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I don't glorify you like I should. I'm a sinner who deserves judgment. But I'm going to cast myself on your mercy and ask you to forgive me. And then God will forgive you and enable you to be in relationship with Jesus. All you have to do is humble yourself. And say, God, I'm going to turn away from my sins and I'm going to trust you. And when you do that, you'll become friends with Jesus, the maker of all things. What a privilege. Let's pray together. Father, we, we can't believe that we get to be friends with Jesus. Father, we thank you for making this possible by devising an incredible plan in eternity past that involves sending your own son to be crucified in our place and then rising him from the grave, filling us with your spirit to believe the gospel, 
Lord, help us this week to be exceedingly glad and joyful because Jesus is our friend. Lord, thank you for taking the initiative with us. Thank you for agreeing to help us bear fruit. Lord, help us bear abundant fruit this week for your glory. Help us to obey your commands this week because we love you. And help us to love those around us by sacrificing for them. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.